Thank you guys for coming. Uh, as a, as a follow-up from last time, Scott has for you back on the cart. Is that right? It's on the cart. On the cart back there are, are the rest of the um, explanations for why at Grace Bible Church we take uh, it, it to be deacons' wives um, and not women who are deacons from 1 Timothy 3. Brian, do you have them there? If you want one of those and you didn't grab one of those, Brian's got one right here. He can get that for you. So you can insert that into your notes. Okay. Um, Good men on both sides of that argument who have women who are deaconesses in their churches um, and good men who don't believe that. And... um, I'm I'm overwhelmed personally by the evidence that I think it's it's um, their wives, um, and you can see it in those reasons there um, that are given to you. If you have any other questions about that, you can come ask about that anytime you want. Let's um let's remind ourselves why we're here. What what is build all about? We have we have four meetings left. Um, I don't know if you remember me saying at the beginning, but I said. Not all of you who are in here will be here when it's done. And you can kind of see how that, that happens. Uh, so either either we're doing this too long, we need to cut it off about a month or two <coughs> earlier, or, uh, or or something else is going on, I don't know. But um, let, let's come back to why we're here, what we're trying to do, and remind ourselves of that. Um, we're, we're calling the men of Grace Bible Church to unite around some spiritual leadership disciplines um, about what it means to be a man of God. And um, BUILD exists at the, at the very foundational level um, for where the men of the church are at. We're calling all of the men of the church who have professed faith in Jesus Christ and who call Grace Bible Church their home. We, we're calling to them and saying, come and join us in BUILD and unite with us around these leadership disciplines. Because this is foundational. We want to catch every man from one end of the church to the other and and call them into this spiritual pursuit, the spiritual discipline of bringing their heart before the Word of God in order to meet with and worship the God of the Word. Um, That's foundational. I wish somebody would have said that to me the first week that I got saved. I wish somebody would have helped me to understand that first and foremost, this is the revelation of a person. It's the revelation of a being, and not just any being, God, God Almighty. And then God became flesh. Um, the Word became flesh. The communication of God took on flesh, and we have. this is the best we have of Him right now. We're going to get Him with much greater clarity when he comes and when we see him we will things will be all cleared up uh, and it will be finally revealed who we are in Christ as well Colossians 3 4 says that um, so when you come to the word of God you want you must establish the discipline that I want to come here and the reason I want to come here is because I need to know the one who has revealed himself here to me and the only reason you would want to do that is because God has transformed you on the inside. You are not the person you were before. The desires that you had before Christ 
would never have led you to want to come and know who God is in this way, in a, in a worshipful way. Um, so in making you into a new creature in Christ, you now have this desire for his word and you must feed that new desire all the time. Um, becoming a Christian is like skateboarding uphill on a very steep hill. You constantly have to be putting your foot down and pursuing God. Always going after him. There's not any coasting. Putting a foot up and just chilling. You do that on a hill and what happens? You are still in the flesh. You are a mixed conditioned creature and what's going to happen to you? You stop pursuing God. You stop seeking him here. What's going to happen to you? Are you going to get better? You're going to go the wrong way. That doesn't mean you're not saved, but it means that you're not disciplining yourself for the purpose of godliness to go see and meet with God and know Him. So, listen, when you want, if you're getting tired, you get to rest in heaven, okay? And you get to rest in heaven for a really, really long time. Um, so, don't worry about that. You're going to get all the rest you want, and it's going to be great, and it's going to be very satisfying. Um, keep working hard, labor hard, be diligent to bring your heart before the Word of God to meet with Him. Um, the Word of God is a means to an end. Okay, do you understand that? The Word of God is a means to an end. Um, it is God did not create this to be an end. You don't come and worship a book. You worship the God of the book. It's a means to the one that you worship. That does not mean, because the Word of God is a means, that does not mean you treat this shabbily. Sometimes men want to make sure that the Word of God is not mistreated or that uh, people don't have a low view of the Word of God and they think that the way to do that is to put this up as a what? An end. I know of some people in a church who actually say, Lord, we worship your Word. That troubles me. A little bit. Because this is not God. It reveals God. But it is not God. These are words in a book that reveal him. And because He is the mean, this is the means to an end, which is God, it doesn't mean that you treat it shabbily. Oh, you, you guard it all of the more. And you take great care of it. And it has, this, is, this means is an authority over your life. It is God's authority to you represented in these words, revealed through these words, to tell you where to submit your life under him. It's important, but it is not God. God is God, and these are his words, and they are a means to him, and you must pursue him only through these words that are his means. Okay? All right. That makes an impact in your home. Discipline two. The people in your home need to be greatly impacted by that first and foremost. You can't leapfrog over them. Then as you are doing that and you're that kind of a man where your heart is full of God and his word and you are impacting the people of your home, you then want to step into discipline three. The ministry and people around you are impacted. That kind of man is the man that um, needs to be involved in the body of Christ with as many people as he possibly can. Because that man has something to say. That man has been with God and he has something to offer those who need to draw near to God also. That's the man you want evangelizing outside of the church. That's the man you want to send to a mission field um, because that man knows God. Um, 
is eager to reveal God um, through the gospel. Um, fourth qualification or fourth uh, discipline are the qualifications, which we just finished up last time together. We're directing all of you guys to take a look at the qualifications of life, asking you to prayerfully consider each one of those, uh, to even pray through them on a regular basis. You got that guide last time that will help you pray um, through those qualifications. Aim to be a qualified man. God will do with you what he wants to do with you, but, but aim to be a qualified man. And then today we're going to, for the next, for this time and the next two, we're going to be talking about the hermeneutic. Now you're ready to, um, in thinking about um, a pursuit of God in his word, the way that we've been talking about it, now you're ready to, to think about um, what's the proper way to interpret the Bible. And so we're going to spend three different um, Saturdays together talking about that. And those are meant to really be kind of just a, um, an appetizer for H3. Um, H3 is for the men of the church who have done build faithfully and done build well and who have a desire to go on and learn more. Um, so I want to encourage you that what you're going to get today is in the next two Saturdays is really just a, a teaser for a whole year's worth of, build, or of H3. And then lastly, we'll spend our last Saturday together uh, in May with the women all together, uh, the men and the women together sitting together. It's my, one of my favorite times. And we'll just talk about the vision and the purpose of Grace Bible Church. Because all of these disciplines are, we're asking you to work them out here at Grace Bible Church. Okay? Now, we're going to break off into small groups in just a moment right after I pray. Um, and today you only get 35 minutes tops. I'm sorry, but you only get 35 minutes because we have a lot to cover today. And I want to make sure that you, you get that, okay? So let me pray. Let's ask God to bless our time together today. Father, we do ask that you would bless um, our time. Lord, we never want to just assume because we're Christian men and because we've gathered together and because your Bible is open before us, we never want to assume that, um, well, we're obviously automatically just meeting with you and worshiping you, that our hearts are in the right place. So God, we ask that you would um, bless our time and, and bless it in this way, that you would soften our hearts, draw our hearts to yourself as you have revealed yourself in your word. Um, make us sensitive to our own sin so that we would want to turn from it and flee from it to Jesus. Um, give us a, increase our appetite, our hunger for your word. Um, so God, come and, and meet with us as we draw near to you to meet with you. Lord, take our small group time and, and, and really bless it uniquely so that the men of the church are encouraged as we um, gather together, as we talk about what we're learning, the impact that your word is having on our hearts. Help us to love each other well in those times, to pray for each other, um, to encourage one another. So Father, we commit this day to you. We want Jesus Christ to be preeminent among us. And we pray, God, that you would um, have your way among us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and take out your yellow sheet for next time. Homework due April 13th, two weeks from today. Um, look at your yellow sheet. On the front side, it's going to be very typical uh, for what you've seen all year. Uh, another section of Psalm 119. If you turn over to the back side, though, uh, your back side is going to be uh, correspond to the first couple of pages really the first two and a half pages of, of what we're going to talk through today. Um, 
You're going to read through the presuppositions on the, the first page of your homework. Just read through that carefully because I'm not going to spend as much time on that this year as I have in the past. Uh, whatever kinds of words you need to look up, look those words up. Um, and if you have any questions, write down questions from that section. Then you're going to go to the next page. There's two wrong ways to interpret Scripture. Look, there's about a hundred wrong ways to interpret Scripture. Here's two of them. Um, an allegorical method and a uh, what it means to me or a, what is more theologically known as a neo-Orthodox or a reader response theory um, that is prevalent today. Um, and your, your key phrase that I want you to be thinking about as you look through that is the controlling line of authority. Do you see that in the one, the fourth bullet point down? And, and I'm going to talk to you about what that means in a second. But I just want to point out to your, point your homework out to you before we actually just do a quick run through, so that you'll have a sense of what to expect in your homework. Um, so you're going to be asking yourself, where's the controlling line of authority located for interpretation in the allegorical method? So when somebody wants to interpret the Bible allegorically, you're asking yourself, where's the controlling line of authority for them in their meaning? Um, when you get to the what it means to me group of people who interpret the Bible that way, where's their controlling line of authority located when they're trying to find meaning? That's what you're asking yourself. And I'm going to explain that more to you in a moment. And then just any questions you have as we race through the 12 principles of interpretation. So your homework for next time is going to be based off of what we're going to talk about today. And the first two and a half pages we're going to spend much less time on than the, compared to the last pages. Um, this material today that you've got comes from uh, a bigger book called How to Study the Bible. A friend of mine in South Africa, uh, we, we grew up together in Nebraska, or we didn't grow up together, we went to college together in Nebraska. Um, he tried to witness to me when I was already a believer. Long story, if you want to hear that sometime, I'll tell you about it. It was the way we met. Um, for some reason, he didn't, know, he didn't think I looked like a Christian. So judgmental. Um, but anyway, he's a good friend, and he um, did his doctorate in the expository preaching um, at Masters. He was a year ahead of me in what he did, and now he's he's been a pastor in South Africa for years um, in Pretoria. And the men that he um, works with in his church are, are English-only guys. And so he came up with a, a, a tool to help them study the Bible uh, if all they would ever know is English. And, and that's probably going to be a lot of you guys. You're probably only ever going to know English and uh, for, for studying your Bible, and that's great. This is, an, from my perspective, one of the best tools, if not the best tool that I've seen that's out there. If you want this emailed to you as a PDF, respond to Ali on the last build and just say, email me the How to Study Your Bible or the PDF Scott talked about. Okay, And you can get the whole thing. What you're going to look at today is about the first eight pages of it or so. Okay? There's all kinds of uh, assignments in here. If you're going to be in H3, this is required text in H3. Um, so you'll have it anyway. Okay? All right. Let's pray. And then we're going to jump into our time together as we're just talking about the hermeneutic that we like to use at Grace Bible Church. Okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, um, I'm so eager to talk about this. And this is so um, much fun uh, for me. I pray it would be for these guys as well, that, Lord, it would bring clarity to um, how to interpret your Bible, your word to us. Father, the reason we want to know how to interpret it and find the meaning that is there is because it reveals you to us. It also reveals our own um, condition, 
uh, to us, uh, what it means to be a, a son or a, a daughter of God. Um, it tells us about your son and his work at the cross, his empty tomb. It tells us about who we are as the church. It gives us hope as we anticipate the coming of Jesus Christ. Pray, Lord, that you would help us um, be the right kind of men armed with the right hermeneutic, the right way to interpret Scripture. So God, meet with us, help us, guide us. Um, and remind these men um, that this is a process of learning and practicing it. Um, this is not an event, a one-time thing where they'll get this today and all of their questions will be answered. They'll never have another question about how to interpret Scripture. But this is just an introduction um, to a lifelong pursuit of learning how to interpret your word. You are great and you are awesome. We humble ourselves under you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, the hermeneutic just means the way of interpreting Scripture. Hermeneutics is, is just simply how to interpret Scripture. Uh, it's a system of rules that you use to interpret Scripture. We're going to give you 12 rules today. Um, eventually, as we get to that, um, you could come up with 100 rules. You could take these 12 and you could break them down into four more each. Um, you could add other things that aren't even mentioned here. Um, so we're just going to give you a, an introduction and a summary of how to do it. But let's start with presuppositions. I'm going to read through these real briefly. You're going to need to spend more time on them, okay? Um, there are some things that we presuppose about the Bible um, as we interpret it. Number one, the Bible is God's written revelation to man, and thus the 66 books of the Bible given to us by the Holy Spirit constitute the plenary, inspired equally in all parts, Word of God. And you can look at scriptures on these. Number two, the Word of God is an objective, propositional revelation. It is uh, verbally inspired in every word, absolutely inerrant in the original documents, infallible, and God-breathed. We teach the literal, grammatical, historical interpretation of Scripture, which affirms the belief that the opening chapters of Genesis present creation in six literal days. Um, number three, the Bible constitutes the only infallible rule of faith and practice. There's, there's no other place for us to turn to find the rules of what it means to believe in the faith uh, in the practice. Okay. We also presuppose, number four, that God spoke in his written word by a process of dual authorship. The Holy Spirit so superintended the human authors that through their individual personalities and different styles of writing, they composed and recorded God's word to man. That's 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, right? We did that without error in the whole or in the part. You can't find a part that is in error. You can't take the whole thing and find error. The presupposition, the last one, number five. While there may be several applications of any given passage of Scripture, there is but one true interpretation. Uh, wherever you see the word interpretation, you can also insert the word meaning. Um, meaning. So while there may be several applications, plural, there is but one meaning in any given passage of Scripture. The meaning of Scripture is to be found as one diligently applies the literal, grammatical, historical method of interpretation under the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. Uh, this is any, any um, in, 
way of interpreting scripture that you use, uh, if if you are not uh, moved and carried, um, I don't want to use apostolic language, that'd be bad. If you are not, um, what's the word in Second Corinthians, or First Corinthians two, if you are not illuminated, that's the word I'm looking for. Um, by the by, the Holy Spirit, you're you're lost. Um, you need the Spirit's help as you interpret God's word. Um, it is a responsibility of believers to ascertain carefully the one true intent and meaning of Scripture, recognizing that proper application is binding on all generations. Yet the truth of Scripture stands in judgment of men. Never do man, uh, men stand in judgment of it. Now, many things are said in there that we're going to talk on uh, in, the, in the next sections. Let's go to the two wrong ways. Um, the, the thing that I want you to write across the top of, of page two, and you'll notice that this isn't like blanks filled in to fill in like our other homework we have. Uh, you're just going to want to jot down some things maybe in the margins and in between sections. But across the top of section one, where it says two wrong ways, I want you just to write the question down, where is the controlling line of authority? Write that just right across the top of page two. Two wrong ways. This is key. Where is the controlling line of authority? Listen to each other when you talk about Scripture. When you're listening, like when you're all hanging out and you're having that theological powwow, and a guy is just, he's just going. Ask yourself this question. For him, where is his controlling line of authority? And then when it's your turn and you're spouting off your grand theological ideas that you have, ask yourself the question, as I'm talking, where's my controlling line of authority? That is huge. Now, we'll we'll just talk briefly about the allegorical method. An allegory is a story in which the people and events of the story have hidden or symbolic meanings. Those who interpret the Bible allegorically bypass the clear historical meaning of the text and they make imaginative associations between their Christian experience and persons or events in the text. There's a great example from an early church father in interpreting the the parable of the Good Samaritan by making the following associations. The traveler who is attacked represents a a person seeking salvation. The robbers represent Satan. Naturally, the Good Samaritan is Christ. The oil and the wine, the Samaritan administered to the injured man's wounds, picture the Holy Spirit and forgiveness. The donkey is the gospel because it was the vehicle that carried the injured man to the inn, which is the church where the man recovered. And if you ask yourself the question for that man, where is his controlling line of authority? I can tell you where it is not. It's not in the text. It was in his imaginative associations. Now, he may have said theologically true things, but he did not say what that text says from Luke. So his controlling line of authority was not in the text. It was in his ideas of how he wanted to communicate. Okay? Um, the what it means, you and I don't live there. If, if you do that with text, well, God bless you. We'll just come alongside you and help you out. But um, you don't live there in an allegorical, probably, way of interpreting. You're, you're probably, you've grown up in the soup. That's the next one. The what it means to me generation. That's us. Christians sitting around with each other with the Bible open and one after another going, well, what that means to me is, and it just goes around and it goes around and it goes around. And actually, that is a very sloppy way of talking to begin with. 
Um, this method comes in two packages. One is a scholarly package and one is the popular package. We're more in the popular one. Here's the scholarly. It, it's the neo-orthodox or the reader response theory uh, or interpreting uh, interpretation of scripture. And it's based on a particular view of the Bible. Modern theologians don't believe the Bible is infallible or inerrant. They don't believe the Bible in itself is God's word. It's merely a record of how men in ages past experienced God. Therefore, it is suggestive to us, but not authoritative. Your experience of God might be different than Moses' experience of God or Paul's or Peter's. And so for the scholar, he's like saying, yeah, you can use this Bible if you want, but read it and then when it strikes you, when you have your response as a reader, ah, now that's enlightening. Now there's authority. But it doesn't have authority until it strikes you a certain way. Okay? That's the scholarly mo- model. Um, the, the other method that's on the popular, popular level down at the bottom is reflected more in the, in the model, what, what does this verse mean to me? So, so God's intent in the text is really not the concern the historical theological context is really irrelevant. It's only how it immediately and ultimately strikes me that matters. See, that's our popular version of it. So in other words, I can read it, and it does, it's just like I, those are just words. But all of a sudden, when it strikes me, now that passage has meaning, significance. Now you tell me, where's the controlling line of authority in that? It's not until I feel something about it that now I'm bound to it. That's very dangerous. Watch for that inside you. It's in me. It's in you. The controlling line of authority is in the text, not how you respond to it. Do you understand? Okay. Um, you can use all kinds of examples. When you're reading through a commentary on Genesis 1-3, to and a guy makes all kinds of appeals to, to scholarly opinions about... This text is saga, or it's exalted prose. It's so exalted. What God is writing as prose is so exalted that it can't mean actually what it says. And science, blah, 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 blah. Ask yourself, where's his controlling line of authority? Is his controlling line of authority actually in words on the page where they're connected grammatically and with, in, in, with syntax? I mean, their phrases and clauses are hooked together in a certain way. Is his controlling line found in actually the words of Genesis 1, or is his controlling line of authority rooted in what scholars have said it is, or what science has said? This is a key question, guys, that you always need to be asking yourself as you're studying. Where is my controlling line of authority. Okay? And you always want it rooted down in your text. You need, you know how people have those dog leashes where you can like be let out and you pull it back and a little poodle comes back, right? Okay? You don't want one of those for you. You want a very short choke collar that chains you to the word of God and you are this close. And every time you want to go, hey, I, well, nah. no, you just stay right there. You want a choke leash on you that keeps you looking at the text. That's where you're, Why do you want that? Because that's your controlling line of authority. Don't look away. Don't run away. Don't run off to other ideas. Stay right in the text you're in. Okay. Now, the right way to interpret is carefully and normally. Um, just interpret carefully. 
The right way to interpret the Bible is to read it as carefully and normally as possible. In fact, 2 Timothy 2.15 commands that we be careful readers of God's word. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. While not forgetting its unique characteristics, it's the God-breathed word, we must let the scripture mean what it means based on what the words say. Why? That's the controlling line of authority. Interpretation is not a magical or mysterious process. It is reading carefully and normally, not looking for fanciful, allegorical, or personal meanings. Okay? Psalm 19, verse 10, for instance. Uh, the psalmist says, Your judgments are sweeter than honey. Well, I'm allergic to honey, so God's judgments are an irritation to me that I try to avoid. That's silly, right? But that kind of stuff happens. You are more influenced by your own experiences and your own uh, vantage points, perspectives that you've had in life, and you bring those to God's word more than you know you do. And so you just need to be aware. Of course, since the Bible is God's book, to understand it, we must seek God's wisdom. I love Psalm 119, verse 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. Having sought the necessary grace to handle the divine message as a carpenter who measures twice, cuts once. Measure twice, cut once. Measure twice, cut once. We must accurately cut straight the words and sentences of Scripture. These 12 principles on the following pages are the basic guidelines for reading God's word carefully and normally. Um, as you have questions and stuff, I want you to feel free to raise your hand. Um, because I know where we're going to be going the next two Saturdays that we're together. What I'm going to try to do, if you if you have any questions, I'll try to answer, give you a brief answer today. And if I think we're going to cover that in the next two, I'll say, uh, write your question down, remember it, see if we don't answer it in the next two. But I'll try to give you a, a briefer answer today, okay? So let's start with some rules that you can um, interpret Scripture by. Let me, let me just help you understand a, a couple of different important words. We're obviously talking about hermeneutics, right? These are the rules um, of interpreting interpreting scripture. Now, what we're giving you here in many ways, most of these will apply to any other. This is just what you do with language. What we're talking about today is just the way language works. Okay, now, the language that is recorded in here into words in this Bible is, is unique words. These are unique, right? Um, but So there's some rules for that that are a little bit different. But um, hermeneutics is the rules that you use in interpreting the scripture. When you actually use the rules and you apply them and you put them to work, there's another word for that. That's exegesis. And no, it's not Jesus' name in there. Okay? Exegesis. Okay, that is um, applying the rules. Just so that you understand, when you hear like exegetical or something like that, the word "ex" is a prefix that means you you cut out of or it comes out of something. So, in other words, you're applying the rules so that you can get meaning out of the text. Um, there's another word that's related to this. And we have to be very careful about that. I said Jesus. That has a different prefix on it, and that means you're putting down into the text 
ideas and meanings that are not in the text. You want exegesis. You want the, the meaning to come out of the text as you apply rules of interpretation. You do not want to come to the text and put meaning into it from you. When was the last time you were thrilled that somebody did that with your words? They took your words and they brought their meaning and they crushed them into your words. You don't like that. I don't like that. Let's not do that to God's word. Let's just give him the same courtesy, right? All right, here's your 12 rules. Number one, the clarity of scripture. The Bible can be understood because God meant for it to be understood. God meant his words to be understood. Isaiah 45, verses 18 and 19. I am the Lord, there is none else. I have not spoken in secret in some dark land. I, the Lord, speak righteousness, declaring things that are upright. I have spoken not in secret, not in some dark land. I declare things that are upright. God spoke to be understood. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong um, to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. Deuteronomy 29. Um, this book does not contain everything God knows. There are some secret things that he has that still belong to him, and they are his. Um, these things have been revealed to us. That does not mean that you understand everything or that I understand everything that he said, but these things belong to us. And God communicated clearly. Um, when was the last time you communicated to not be understood? You intentionally communicated to be fuzzy. Now look, you and I can do that, and we can do that sometimes because we, we want, we're looking for a way. We need a we need a trap door to get out of, and so I'm going to communicate in a fuzzy manner so you don't know what I'm saying. But even then, when I'm creating, uh, communicating in a fuzzy way, I intend one thing by it and one thing only. Look, you and I, we, we communicate to be clear, to be understood. That's the way language works, and God, the holy God, did the same thing. Not everything in the Bible is easy to understand. Peter felt that way reading Paul's words, right, in Second Peter 3. However, as Deuteronomy 29, 29 indicates, God revealed his word to be understood and lived. The revealed things, the words of the law are ours. That means we study God's word. This is huge right here. We study God's word expecting to discover a coherent message. You come to God's word expecting to find a coherent message. Why? Because God spoke coherently. When we do come across theologically obscure passages, we must give precedence to the clear sections of Scripture that address that issue. We'll talk more about that. So why do we grant this interpretation, this rule of, of uh, this principle of interpretation? Well, one of the reasons is because we really like to grant it to ourselves. We communicate so as to be understood. So did God. Um, number two. The accommodation of Revelation. Yes, Trevor. Just real quick, you said you're going to talk more about that last statement about, um, from our vantage point, text that seem not as clear, yeah. um, but in the sight of God, still as clear as any other text. Absolutely. Have, so it's just a matter of. Yeah, it's from our perspective, of course. Yeah, God, God didn't communicate anything with obscurity, it, it, but from our vantage point, certainly. 
And we'll talk more about that. It's one of the other rules of um, interpretation or principles. Okay? Accommodation of revelation. God revealed his truth in terms that human beings can understand. So in other words, God accommodates what he's revealing to our intellect. He is of one intellect. We are of quite another intellect. And so he accommodates his language to our intellect so we can understand. Okay? For example, this, the scripture was written in well-known human languages. That, that was really helpful. He didn't pick an obscure, high mountain region language where 150 people speak it and that's it. He used the most common languages of the day when he um, had his word written, Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek. Uh, when it speaks of infinite or divine concepts, it does so in terms we can relate to. For example, Second Chronicles 16.9 says, God's eyes move throughout the earth. That doesn't necessarily mean that God the Father of Spirit being has physical eyes like you and I do. He doesn't. But God knew that eyesight is the most perceptive of the human senses. So he grabs what is, for us, the most perceptive of, uh, of senses, and he describes his infinite perceiving abilities with that kind of language. Accommodation means God stoops to our level, describing him in ways we can understand. When God does that, he does it not to be confusing to us, but to be clear to us. Every parent understands this. If you got little ones, you will accommodate your language to their level. Why? Because you don't want them to understand you? Because you do want them to understand you. It matters, so I'm going to simplify this and I'm going to put this in terms you understand so that it's clear, right? So accommodation of revelation is um, to be understood. It's not to make fuzzy, okay? Number three, one meaning of a text. Although a text may have many different applications, it has only one meaning, the meaning of the original human author moved by the Holy Spirit. Um, all of this right here, uh, the hermeneutics and the exegesis and applying of the rules, all of this is to get after meaning. Okay, These things are, are tools that are given to you so that you can ascertain, so that you can come up with the meaning of a text. And um, the rule that you need to operate by is there is one meaning in a, any given text. Okay, let me ask you this, um, just how it works with you. Uh, and you can make a statement to your wife. Honey, I will be home as soon as I am done with work today. You meant how many things when you said that? You only meant one thing. And if she takes the wrong meaning or she comes up with a different meaning than what you said, um, well, then you have a whole wonderful conversation trying to clarify that, right? Or if she said one thing to you, she had one meaning, and if you thought she meant something else, um, she only meant one thing. You and I, language doesn't work in such a way that we communicate two different things at the same time. Okay? We'll talk more about what happens when you use uh, metaphor, or when you use sarcasm, nice tie. That looks good. Yeah, that's great. 
you still only mean one thing when you say that. Right? Okay. One meaning. Consider, for example, the command, do not steal. For the 10-year-old, that might apply. Now, I want to encourage you to circle or underline certain words. Uh, Circle the word apply. For a 10-year-old, that might apply to shoplifting a candy bar. For an adult, it might apply to doing non-work-related activities while his employer is paying him to work. Those are two different applications. However, there is only one what? Meaning to the text. Don't take something that is not yours or not yours to use in that way. Okay? So applications, we're going to get to this more in a moment, plural, meaning there's only one. Okay? And I would would even put forward before you today, and we'll talk more about this in the weeks to come, that even in in sections of Scripture where you're talking about prophecy, um, Old Testament prophecy, there is still one meaning. And uh, we'll, we'll tackle that. That's a big one to take a big bite out of. But what I want to do, if anything, today and in the, in the weeks to come is I want to begin to, to help you make sure you're using the right kind of language when you're talking about meaning and application, um, interpretation versus exegesis and things like that. I want to start helping you use the right language and speaking accurately just about this. There, there's only one meaning in a text. Um, we'll look at... Um, in, in, a, in a couple of weeks, we'll look at um, the New Testament's use of the Old Testament. What is the New Testament writer doing? Is he providing now a new meaning to the old meaning so that now there's actually two meanings or did the old meaning now get replaced by the new meaning or is that even what's going on at all? Um, we'll talk about that. Um, there's an explanation that doesn't necessarily violate the Old Testament's original meaning. Um, Again, when did you ever communicate intending to say two different things, to, to, to communicate two different meanings? Let's, let's give God the same credit and let's work hard to understand these words. Just like you would want people to work hard to get inside your head. Okay, so then what did you mean when you said that? You would want somebody to do that with you, right? So that they understood your one meaning. Let's do the same thing with God. Okay, let's work hard to find it. Number four. Harmony of Scripture. Even though written over a period of 1,500 years by more than 30 human authors, the Bible agrees with itself. Amazingly so, or actually not so amazingly, when you consider it's one divine author, God. Because the Scripture was spoken by God, who knows everything and never lies, the Bible does not contradict itself. There is a danger lurking in this principle, however. We must avoid the practice of determining what we believe based on one text and then forcing every other text to harmonize with that view. That leads to bad, even dishonest theology. Do you understand what what we're talking about here? Um, There there will be times in your life where you will have a, um, you'll you'll go in and out of seasons where you'll have these little theological hobby horses that, that it's your deal. And you're so passionate about it. And you love it. And there may be other passages that from your, your perspective, from your perspective, look like maybe they don't say that. They might say something else. Maybe even something, from your vantage point, contradictory to it. And so what you do as you ride your theological hobby horse is you just make all of those other ones harmonize with this one. Okay? And what you have to be careful about is whether or not that's 
number one, whether you're seeing things rightly and whether or not you should be trying to harmonize all of those with your understanding of it. Or does God really intend to communicate in different passages that there are other dimensions to this broader subject that you haven't even discovered yet? You understand? So you have to be careful to not do this. Um, let, let me give you an example. Um, and, and, and by the way, every single one of these exists, not because God was fuzzy about what he communicated, but because our understanding is limited. And we have still uh, the influence of the fallen nature upon us. Um, so sometimes we'll see, uh, we'll come across what would appear to be two truths that are in contradiction to one another. Let me give you just a, a basic understanding of this. Um, go to Psalm 5, verse 5. And, and I'll, as you're turning there, I'll ask you the question. Does God love sinners or does God hate sinners? <laughs> See what? John, I'm sorry, Psalm 5.5. 5. Does God hate sinners or does he love sinners? And here's the way we've come up with, when I say we, I'm talking about evangelicalism. Oh, God doesn't hate the sinner. He hates the sinner. Okay. Because then when you're, if you, if you've gone, yeah, that's, that's the way I'll try to harmonize it all so that it, it, it all comes out nice and clean. Yeah, God loves the sinner, but he hates the sin. Yeah, that's it. Devotion. Psalm 5 today. I wake up and I get to verse 5. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. Wait a minute. That actually says that God hates the one who does iniquity. Okay, so I've got to change the way that I'm trying to understand this. Go to Psalm 11.5. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Those texts need to stand on their own and mean what they mean. Okay? Now, go to Titus chapter 3, verse 4. And you can find some other verses like this. We know this, um, verse 3, We also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, that means something. Now, if I have trouble in my own mind reconciling how can I hate and love at the same time. What must... Okay, I have a hard time understanding that for me, for you. But because I have a hard time understanding that, what must I be careful to not do? To say that God is constrained to the same kind of thinking that I am. Evidently, the scriptures reveal that he is able to hate with holy hatred and love with his holy love simultaneously. One without compromising the other. And the beautiful thing is to see how both of these things are reconciled in the cross of Jesus Christ. 
What do you see at the cross? Do you see God's hate or do you see his love? Yes. And if he did not do that, you and I would be in a world of hurt. If God thought the way you thought, or the way I think about love and hate at the same time, we're in a big world of trouble. Okay? He can love and he can hate at the same time. How he does that and doesn't compromise his holiness, I have no idea, but I trust him that he is that way. Trevor? This is like a question for us. Would you say it's possible for the believer um, to, and, and is it even biblical to both hate the sinner and love the sinner, or for us as recipients of grace, I think of Romans 12, 9, which says, do not, you know, the light of evil does rejoice with the sharpening that's printing. Um, but hating evil, I think, 12, 9. So is that where we get this idea of we love the sinner, but we hate the sin? What we're going to do to to, um, conduct ourselves by is where we have clear prescription from God and we have clear prescription from God that we need to love our enemies. And yet at the same time, um, we we hate the sin. You can look at Jude, end of Jude, um, very strong language about um, hating sin. You can look at um, Ephesians 5, I believe also... Um, says some of the same things. Um, but, but, but yeah, I mean, what, what's going to guide us, what you want to be careful about is not taking something about that's true for God and saying, because it's true for him, I will conduct myself by that also. That may be true in some ways, but you should only conduct yourself based on the prescription that God has given to you through Jesus. Um, and so there may be some things that will look similar to what God does, and there may be some things that are radically different than the way God does as well. Um, harmony of Scripture. Okay. Um, and there's other tensions like that um, in Scripture. Number five, normal interpretation. This is, this is, one of, this is so helpful. Um, this is, um, and what I would like to do, this, this needs to be recovered. Literal, grammatical, Historical interpretation of scripture. Okay? This needs to be rescued. It has fallen on hard times. Um, what the general opinion when, when you come across this as you hear people even talking about a literal, grammatical, historical, it, immediately there's a straw man that's drawn. And that guy is, is a guy you don't want to be like because he is, man, he is just wooden, literal. He, just, he doesn't allow for any flexibility in language. I mean, he's just, he's one of those kooks. He's got charts and stuff about the Bible, when God does stuff. And, and this needs to be rescued. We have not defended, look, you defend scripture, but there are sometimes good phrases like penal, substitutionary atonement. When that starts to get attacked, you better defend it. We need that. It's ours. This is another one that needs to be defended. What this means, if you want to understand, next time somebody starts bagging on this, you think of two words that go together. Normal and careful. That's really all that means. Normal and careful. Now there's other key ideas, like the historical means you're going to look at the historical setting that it was taking place in. But that's, that's normal and careful. Look, if you said something when you were 10 years old, in a certain situation back then, you want people to understand now that situation you're in. That's just normal. That's just careful, right? 
grammatical. You want to look at the way that words are related together in grammar. And you want to take a, a, a normal sense of the word before you run to other senses of a word. Metaphorical, allegorical, figurative, etc. Okay? Rescue this. Do not let somebody understand this as a, I, I hope you don't understand it as a, as a straw man thing like you bagged on this. Look, this I, want to, I want to reestablish this today, if anything, in your minds. This means normal and careful. Okay? Number five. This means we read the Bible following the reading practices we would consider normal for any other important document. And then Joel gives a, an example here. When the office manager sends the maintenance man a memo instructing him to change the flickering fluorescent globe in the hallway, the maintenance man doesn't read a mystical secret meaning about spiritual light into it. He reads the memo normally and fetches a new globe and a stepladder. That's normal interpretation, and we need to read our Bibles that way too. Um, normal reading means statements are assumed to be literal unless it is evident the author was using a figure of speech. Where's the controlling line of authority on that? Who gets to determine if it's literal or not? You reading it or the context? Tell me. The context. Controlling line of authority. That's your key question every time. For example, when Jesus said, I am the door, we do not conclude that Jesus is made of wood and has hinges. We naturally understand that our Lord was using imagery. Our minds examine the literal meaning, find it unlikely, and we accept it as a figure of speech. Um, a metaphor means, that when you use a metaphor, you're suggesting a resemblance. Jesus is saying, uh, think about a door. Um, I resemble that. I am the door. Okay? It's a resemblance. We should note that even when interpreting figures of speech, this is really important. I'm so glad he has this paragraph in there. Look at this. Last one on page four. We should note, is it your page four? I'm sorry. My, my page is a little different than yours. We should note, um, it's the last paragraph of number five. We should note that even when interpreting figures of speech, it is good policy to begin with the literal. What is a door? Okay, so you know he's speaking metaphorically. But what is a door? Examine. What is a door? What purpose does a door have? Having asked that, then we ask, what was Jesus trying to communicate by comparing himself to a door? So the literal function of a door suggests the meaning of the door. Jesus is the gateway to eternal life. Okay, so understand this. That literal, grammatical, historical, it allows for metaphorical meaning. The straw man that's been put out there about it is that it doesn't. It does allow for metaphor. Jake? And the difference, a lot of people fighting for wanting to bring metaphor to texts, they want to bring metaphor to texts divorced from the text. And in that, what does Jesus mean by the door? Where you're going to go isn't saying, let me contemplate doors. What I would mean if I said that, you're going to go to... Oh, no one comes to the Father but by me. You're, it's, it's, a mean, it's a means to gain entrance to yeah. the Father. Yeah, so, so you can still, you're still literalist, you're still tied to the text, and there's something very different between us when we metaphor right. and somebody who's against that. That's great. Good example. Okay? So normal, careful interpretation. That's all we're looking for. When, when somebody interprets your words, you don't want them to get all metaphorical on you unless you what? Unless you intended to be metaphorical. You want people to be very uh, normal and careful in their approach to your words. 
It's just interesting, though, how quickly we lose sight of that when we approach God's word. Just got to be really careful. Bram? Sometimes, sometimes words, particular words, can have more than one meaning mm-hmm. in the word. So mm-hmm. might, there might be, if you're just tracking words only, there might be a sort of fourth interpretation. Absolutely. We're going to get to that one in number 11. That's an excellent point. Um, those are both the literal, uh, inter- literal interpretations. Uh, well, when he said change the globe, globe can have two meanings. It could mean light bulb in South Africa, but when I say globe, I mean. Yeah. So are there two meanings, or is there still only one meaning? He meant one thing by it, and when I would say globe, I would mean another thing by it. Yeah, I'm just trying to figure out. So I'm trying to get to the definition of literal, right? Mm-hmm. So is, uh, when you tease it out to, to the terms of words, globe can mean uh, light hovering over in the world, right? Both of those are literal. If he says, oh, uh, he, he meant the, uh, the world, and I can't do that, that's still a literal interpretation. It's a wrong literal Correct. Yeah, those, those are not examples of metaphorical. What, what he was trying to say as a metaphorical is like that the custodian or the, the janitor would think some kind of spiritualized something. He would bring in something completely foreign from the two literal uses of the word. One of them is only the right one to use. But he wasn't even trying to use the other literal one in a literal way. He was importing a whole metaphorical idea of spiritual enlightenment in on it. So that's, that's where it's different. Number six, let's talk about context. One of the most important summary statements ever made regarding Bible interpretation is context determines meaning. Context determines meaning. This means that a text of scripture is given its true meaning only when it is considered in right relationship to the words around it. In fact, I would say no other context bears as much weight on the meaning of the text that you're in than the immediate text you're in. Okay? Um, you, 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 you function this way. I function this way. We speak in sentence, phrases and clauses at a time. And we build arguments as we're conversing or as we're writing or we're emailing or whatever. Um, if you communicate a sentence there, and that sentence stands on its own, there is no other context that bears more authority on what you meant in that sentence than that sentence. You don't go turning away from that to go find authority on what that statement meant. You stay in that context. If you write out a whole paragraph and there's a middle sentence in there, in that whole paragraph that you go, what's the meaning of that sentence there in the middle? There is only one context that bears the most significant weight on that, and that is that context. You don't turn away from that to go run someplace else to determine what that one meant. You might find something similar over here, But it's not what this one means here. This is where you've got to be so careful with cross-referencing. Okay, and we'll get to that. Let me go on. Um, For example, we used to joke about this in college. (laughs) My favorite verse is Philippians 2, 3a. We would say, do nothing. It's good. I like that. College guys like that. Old old guys like that, too. Is that a justification? This is obviously the, the microcosm of the, the abuse of this. Is that a justification for laziness? No. The rest of the verse says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. When the immediate words surrounding the command, do nothing, are considered, it's clear Paul was not condoning laziness. 
Another example, Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious. There's a command to be anxious. For nothing. Right? Clarifies everything, right? Uh, Very simple, silly, small examples. But quoting only a portion of a text, we can completely upend the obvious meaning of the text. Not considering the context would have led us to actually disobey God if we had applied our interpretation. Go to Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10. Isaiah 1, verse 10. Here's verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Oh, Isaiah 1 is all about Sodom and Gomorrah. Because it says, that's who he's talking to, right? That's what that verse means, right? Why don't you back up? Verse 1, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amaz, uh, concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Huh. He saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Wait a minute, that's not even at the same time as Sodom and Gomorrah. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a danger, a danger, a donkey its master's manger. But Israel does not know. Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Wait a minute, Israel didn't even exist in Sodom and Gomorrah. It's time. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They've turned away from Him. Where will you be stricken again um, as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is nothing sound in it, only bruises, welts, and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, nor softened with oil. Your land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence. It is desolation as overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. You see, when you read the context back at Joel's um, um, paragraph here, verse 1 says Isaiah prophesied during the reigns of four kings. Those four kings lived 1,400 years after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 3 says Isaiah was proclaiming God's word to Israel. Verse 8 uses the terminology daughter of Zion, an Old Testament phrase referring to Jerusalem. And finally, verse 9 uses the phrases like Sodom, like Gomorrah. Isaiah was making a comparison between Jerusalem of his day and Sodom and Gomorrah, two cities destroyed over a 1,000 years before. Context is important. If you had picked out only verse 10, you would have concluded Isaiah chapter 1 is about Sodom and Gomorrah. Your interpretation would have been embarrassingly inaccurate. Reading the context gives you the true picture. Context determines meaning. Some questions for you to ask. Common questions that you know. Who is writing or speaking? To whom is he writing or speaking? Is there a specific situation addressed in the text that shapes the interpretation? Let's apply those questions to Jeremiah 29.11. This is a favorite soundbite for Christians. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for calamity, dot, dot, dot. Right? Who doesn't want that? Look, you don't even have to be a believer and you want that verse for your life, right? (laughs) Go to Jeremiah 29. 
Like you're going to get nobody arguing against that. That's right. That's right. Now, again, context. Watch this. Verse 1 of chapter 29. These are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exile. The priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Oh, so what is this section? It's a letter that Jeremiah wrote. This was after King Jeconiah and uh, the queen mother, the court officials, the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisah, the son of Shaphan, and Gamariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. Now watch verse 7. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will have welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you and do not listen to the dreams which they dream for they prophesy falsely to you in my name and I have not sent them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. Who's the you? The exiled Jews. For I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord. Plans for what? Welfare. Where do you get your idea of what welfare means when God talks about that there? Back up in verse 7 where it was mentioned three times. I have plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you. And I will restore your fortunes and gather, and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. Um, that verse is often quoted as if it were a general promise to all believers of all ages. However, even a cursory examination of Jeremiah 29 shows that this was a letter sent by Jeremiah to the Jews exiled in Babylon. Reading further, you find that this promise was a part of God's plan to restore the nation of Israel in the future. The ones to whom Jeremiah was writing in the specific situation, the exiled and promised restoration, that's what limits the meaning of the verse. The meaning. It's definitely not a sweeping promise that believers will have an easy and calamity-free passage through life. In fact, the guy who wrote the letter didn't have that. Jeremiah himself was hated, harried, thrown in prison, kidnapped, and martyred for his faithful preaching. We don't even know of one convert for Jeremiah. It certainly did not even apply to him. But we are quick to have it be our verse, right? Let me take you back to some micro ideas, okay? I can remember once writing a letter to a friend. Um, go to Second Chronicles 16. I want you to see this. Here's another verse that's similar to that. I remember thinking, I just want to encourage this friend. Um, it was a family member, young believer. And I just remember thinking, I, I just want to help her. And so 2 Corinthians 
Chronicles. I'm sorry, what did I say? Corinthians? Chronicles, Chronicles that's what I want. Second Chronicles. If you go to Second Corinthians 16, you're going to have some trouble. <laughs> when you get there, let me know. And we'll help you out. Second Chronicles 16, verse 9. And I remember thinking, oh, this is the verse I want. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, and that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. Yeah, that works good. You have acted foolishly. Oh, that, didn't, that doesn't work for my intent. That's not what I... And so dot, 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 dot. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Like that, that's... Uh. You just got to be careful. You got to look at your text. Your, this is this verse is not given to somebody um, who is just weak and and needs some some encouragement. It was given to some foolish people, right? You exactly. You can't just use it how you like. Let me give you another one. Habakkuk one thirteen. Go to Habakkuk. Those of you guys on the iPad are loving it. Oh, there it is, Habakkuk. Those of you with your books are going. I hope nobody's watching me fumble around. Where is it? <laughs> Look, help each other, man. Help each other out. Look at somebody next to you and say, bail me out, brother. I need some help. That's all right. This is why you, we want you to read your Bible once a year. So you know where these books are. Just find those pasty, stuck-together white pages. It's right there. <laughs> uh, we do the same thing with Habakkuk 1.13. Your eyes, oh, we love this about the holiness of God. Your eyes, oh Lord, are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the... Okay, just dot, dot, dot. There's God's holiness. Do you see it? Look, the, you need to understand what Habakkuk's going through. He is messed up in his mind. His mind was just peeled in two different directions trying to figure out, God, I know you to be only holy. What have you done with these Babylonians that you've brought in? They are unholy people. They are an unholy instrument. So how do you, being a holy God who's too pure to look upon evil, how do you look with favor upon these evil ones who have taken us over? I don't get it. You don't want to miss that meaning. You need that meaning in Scripture yourself. Chapter 2, verse 1, I'll stand on my guarded post, Habakkuk says, and station myself on the rampart, and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. I know I'm not thinking right, and I'm going to wait. Look, be careful in your verses you use. Philippians 4:13. it's on the top of every Christian locker room, you come out, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, and everybody hits it on the way out. We're going to win this game because I can do all things through. Oh. What do those passages mean? Context determines meaning, not your situation, not your about to head out into a basketball game. That's not what determines what that means. Guys, I want to say this to you. Train yourself. Train yourself to want the original author's meaning more than a quick, meaningful truth for you. Train yourself to want the author's original meaning more than you want a quick little satisfying something for you. 
because you will never get that something satisfying for you apart from the author's original meaning. Train yourself. Train yourself to want that. And then watch yourself and watch each other for when you explain... This is very interesting. I've I've been in small groups before and, and stuff where... Somebody will be studying the Word of God and, and somebody will say, well, what does that do not neglect mean there? Oh, well, let me show you. Turn to, um, turn to over here. Let me tell you what that means. I'm like, whoa! No, don't turn anywhere. That would be like somebody saying to you, well, let me tell you what you meant by um, when you came home and you said, man, I'm beat. Let me tell you what you meant by that. Three days ago, you said to me when I was helping you in the kitchen, beat the eggs. So that's what you meant. You don't want anybody doing that to your words. So don't do that to God's words. Right? Context determines meaning. So watch yourself. Watch each other when you, you're tempted to want to turn the page to tell somebody what it means. Don't do that. Stay there. I wish... What we, what we should do is we should get those big clamps. And when you're studying a passage, just clamp one on there and then just take a big one and clamp it on there and it's just locked. You can't turn your page for like the first four hours of study. you just got to stay on that page. That would be ideal because that's what you want people to do with your words. So stay there. Exhaust it. Pray. Ask, what, God, what is the meaning in this passage? What, what's going on historically? What's the situation that I need to see so that I can understand it? Okay? Context. Number seven. Progressive revelation. God revealed his truth over an extended period of time. In other words, revelation became more detailed as time went on. It progressed. Um, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days have spoken to us in his son. Can I give you just a little illustration? I thought about this this morning. Good Friday, Jesus crucified. You and I have no idea what we should be thinking today on Saturday. Put yourself back into one of the sandals of of 11 guys. Do you know what the longest day on earth was for those guys? It's today. We read the crucifixion and the the empty tomb like it's all one thing. He died, he's he's raised from the dead. But God let there be, according to their time measurements, three days. God is far more patient in getting his point out than you or I will ever be. We read a finished book and for us, it's easy for us to act like the resurrection happened at the same time as the cross. And it didn't. God made those disciples sit in a room all day wondering what on earth happened. And they waited. And they wept. And they waited. And they scratched their heads. And then he rose from the dead. When you read Moses and the children coming out from Egypt. And then you read other parts later, you can just think, Exodus, Jesus. Uh Uh-uh. When and how did God unfold these things? It wasn't a quick download. Download, 
boom. It took forever to get it out, it would seem. In fact, over 1,500 years. Be careful. I think this is another statement. Your, your interpretation needs to be influenced by God's progressive revelation. Okay? In other words, the way that you interpret needs to recognize and constrain itself to the fact that God revealed some things early and other things that are connected to it, but he didn't reveal them for a long time. So my interpretation needs to be constrained to he revealed it here, and now I need to have some patience. Develop this meaning, have some patience, and move on, and move on, and move on. But don't do this. Don't just, he revealed it here, and now all of these other things that he revealed later are true simultaneously to it. He didn't reveal it that way. So interpret scripture patiently, like God patiently revealed it one step at a time. One step at a time. You and I, because we have one book, can think that this came out just in a dump truck load and it all happened at the same time. It didn't. The people of God had to wait centuries, generation after generation after generation, waiting for these things to come out and to to be revealed. That's the way God captured his meanings in texts. Your interpretation of those meanings in those texts needs to follow that progressive revelation. Do you understand what I'm saying? We'll talk a lot more about that. Um, The fact um, that God's revelation has grown more detailed over time means we must avoid the trap of reading later revelation back into earlier revelation, as if it's all happened at the same time. For example, in Genesis 12, 3, God said he would bless all the families of the earth through Abraham. In Galatians 3, God revealed that part of that blessing is salvation by grace through faith in Abraham's seed, Jesus Christ. It might be a mistake to assume that Abraham understood all of that when God gave it to him in chapter 12. Jesus of Nazareth hadn't even come. Messiah hadn't even been mentioned. So you can't import all of the later stuff that came later back into Genesis 12 as you're trying to determine what the meaning of Genesis 12 is. Now, as you're thinking theologically from the Bible, you better not just stay in Genesis 12. you got to move. And you've got to keep working. You've got to move from left to right as you interpret. Um, only as Revelation progressed did God unveil the specifics of his plan. So when studying Old Testament texts, we must take care not to read into them more than the author could have known. That is so important. Lock yourself in their time, put their sandals on, and, and force yourself to only know what they would know as you try to understand that. Because that's what you, that's where your meaning is found in your words, right? Um, have people stay where you are in your time when you communicated. Once we have established the author's meaning in his historical context, it is appropriate to fill that out with later revelation. However, those two steps must be kept separate. Your current text, determine that meaning, and then if you're teaching a Bible study, let me help you understand this. Okay, I'm going to do it for my sake because... I'm visual, and I need visual stuff to happen. All right. Um, here's your here's your Bible study that you're doing. You're going to teach this. It may be your sermon. Okay? And the front here means your intro, and this here means your closing prayer. Okay? Now, 
what you're saying, let's say you're using a text of scripture. Let's say you're using um, Luke 1. Okay, just for example. Um, you're going to say in your sermon many things. Hopefully you're going to be guided by Luke 1. But what you're going to do is your sermon is going to say more than Luke 1 says. You may need to actually in the beginning part here go back and help them understand the Old Testament a little bit. And then, because Jesus isn't just coming and has been promised and, and John the Baptist's arrival has come, you may need to go forward in your sermon to go to the rest of the New Testament, and Luke 1 operates right there in your sermon. However, Luke 1 does not mean everything the Old Testament said, and it doesn't mean everything that the New Testament says. It means only what Luke 1 says. But in your sermon, you have to cover what? But don't teach Luke 1 like it says everything in the Old Testament, and don't teach it like it says everything in the New Testament. Two very separate steps. Do you understand? Two separate steps. You develop this first and foremost, and then you think, okay, how does this relate to the rest of Scripture? I've got to go back in my study as I teach it to my small group or in my sermon, and I've got to go beyond that in my study, in my presentation. Two separate steps. Progressive revelation. Um, let me give you an example. Turn to Luke chapter 1. I want you to see this. If you were to start, if you were a new Christian and you were going to start reading your Bible, and let's say somebody encouraged you to go to Luke chapter 1. Um, look at this. Verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest. A priest. Huh. Where'd that word come from? Priest. Named Zacharias. Um, dot, dot, dot. Go to verse 6. Uh, they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all of the commandments and requirements. Commandments and requirements. What are those? Where do those come from? Uh, verse 9. Um, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple. Oh, I saw one of those. There was one right down the street from MacArthur's church. It's a Buddhist temple. Yeah, Buddhist temple. Yeah, Buddhist. Um, verse 11. And an angel of the Lord appeared. An angel. What, is, what does that mean? Um, verse 16. And while he turned many of the sons of Israel back, and he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the sons of Israel. Where did that come from? Um, verse 17. And as he will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit of power of Elijah. Who's Elijah? Where did he come from? Um, what does Luke chapter 1 presuppose in your understanding? What does it demand that you know already? The Old Testament. The Old Testament. So are you supposed to understand Luke how? Through the lens of the Old Testament. It works from left to right. It doesn't work from right to left. Um, you, you make sure that you understand Luke 1 according to the way that the Old Testament has revealed itself. And Luke 1 means what it means because you understand what the Old Testament said. Okay? So you've got to make sure you're thinking progressive revelation, left to right. What about like in Hebrews, for instance, where in some places like there's more detail about maybe Moses and Abraham and what they do? Yeah. How does that work yeah. when you go back and interpret? Certainly. Certainly there will be times in the New Testament when the New Testament will reveal more information about an Old Testament. And at that point, then you obviously add that along with what you all, you add that with what you already know along. I'm trying to do left to right for you, which is right to left for me. Sorry. So then you, you add what comes later to what comes. Um, so is that okay. the wrong reading this about Abraham to read, read that into it? Is that... Well, if you were to read everything that Paul reveals in, in Galatians about Abraham... 
back into Genesis 12 for one specific spot, that would be you would be applying a meaning to a text that um, the context itself does not teach. So how do you deal with that? How do you deal with the fact that Genesis 12 doesn't say everything about Abraham that the Bible says about Abraham? Well, there's, there's two ways to go about that. One is you can act like it does and push everything revealed later into it. Or there's another way. It's a better way. It's, it's, it's the only way. Teach what Genesis 12 says. And then in your message, also say, now let's go look and see what further revelation has developed. But Genesis 12 means only what Genesis 12 means. So you, you don't want to just flatten your text out like every single passage reveals the exact same amount of information all of the time at each individual spot. Develop. It's, it's, like, a, it's like a puzzle. Put the piece down and say, that piece matters. If we don't understand this piece, we're not going to get the whole. Now I'm going to put another piece next to it. And then I put another piece next to it. Now we've got the whole puzzle put together because we've got our Bible. So when you go back to examine a piece, do not think and tell people this piece is the puzzle. It's not. It's a piece. And it has a very appropriate place. So take it out. Examine what it is. Put it back in, in your message, so that people understand the rest. But do not give people the impression that the whole puzzle is in that one piece. It's not. Do you understand that? That's progressive revelation. Okay? Take it one piece at a time. Trevor, questions? Uh, yeah, I guess just that, that exact example of Abraham where clear or New Testament passages actually say that he did not waver in his faithfulness when God told him these things. Yet, um, again, if we say, okay, this passage, and he spoke of it in this section of the Old Let's just look at this, but we have this same God's word who clearly says mm-hmm. actually this. Um, I guess I'm not really following how you're saying, hey, let's just look at this and let's take this piece and, and go like this, but then put it back. It's, it seems like if you then just go back here and, and look at this without this, then, then you are not seeing the fullness of what Absolutely. I completely agree with you. I'm not saying ignore the later revelation. What I'm saying is be patient to get to it. Don't quickly leave Genesis 12 behind to talk about Galatians when you need to spend more time there. See, what we, what we do, watch this in your own self. Watch, it's in me. My, my tendency when I read a passage is I get so excited about the bigger trajectory of what's going on. Man, the first thing I want to do is I'm just going like this, or I'm going this way. And all we're saying is one passage at a time. Just stay put. It's not going to hurt you or me, or any guy, to linger longer in one text. The only way it'll hurt you is if you never turn your page. And we're not saying that. Okay, The temptation in our day, the, the evangelical soup that we've been in, the theological soup we've been in, hasn't lingered long enough in texts. So what we're trying to do here is call you back to linger a little bit longer in each text, one at a time. And then, yes, be sure to look at the fuller revelation that does come. But don't try to teach Genesis 12 as if it taught everything Galatians teaches about Abraham. It doesn't. I don't want to give people the impression that Abraham knew in Genesis 12 everything that Paul said. So I'm going to just teach what it says. But maybe in a sermon or maybe in a series or maybe in multiple times together, I may be getting to those other things. I should be getting to those other things as well. Okay. So that statement there, to follow up, I would agree or I would say absolutely Let's teach this passage in light of what it did. But if we 
Um, it almost seems like it's, it would be wrong in the sense of how to kind of, I guess, listen to where we then bring over this text and say, hey, now let's look what has further been said. Let's, let's stay here and see what this is saying now, but we can, if we just stay there, like you said, we're going to miss um, what has later been said. Almost in the passage, if we were to teach from left to right only, and we stayed there and we said, okay, that's it for today, Genesis 12, come back next week, Genesis 13, but then later, you know, 20 years, we'll get to Galatians. Yeah. At that point, it almost seems like, you know, you got to come yeah. back. And, and without trying to say Abraham knew everything that was going on, because he didn't, um, God knew, and so mm-hmm. I guess it's that. Yeah, you've got, you've, got a, you've got a tension to live with. Um, if, if, your, if your conviction, if a man's conviction is the only way he's ever going to teach his Bible, he's going to start in Genesis 1. Verse 1. And he's verse by verse. And he's only going to go left to right. And he's going to take his old sweet time. When he is dead in Leviticus, his church is going to, be, is going to have suffered. Okay? Not saying that. Not saying that at all. Um, what we're saying is, um, you have to honor each text. How long was God willing for Genesis 12 to stand without any revelation after it? I think we should, obviously he gave more. We don't live as if he didn't give more. But I think our hermeneutical process should allow for some patience. What I mean is just linger in the text longer. Let it influence that. I'm going to stay here. God was content to reveal something here without other stuff being revealed for a long time. So I'm going to, I want to understand that. Your, your other solution would be, one guy could say, I'm going to give you two straw men on the extremes. The first ex- straw man extreme is, I'm going to start in Genesis 1-1, and we're not going to go except one verse at a time, left to right, and I die in the distance. Okay? Nobody gets the rest of the, of the Bible. That's one straw man on the other side. The straw man on the other side is every time I get up and preach to my church, no matter what text I'm in, my message is from Genesis to Revelation every time. Genesis to Revelation every time. The whole Bible, theologically. It doesn't matter what passage I'm in, I'm just going to back up and say, remember God created, and then there was this... And I'm just going to unfold the whole line of, of, of redemption, unfold it every time. Um, I don't think that's as helpful either. And if we were to look at those two spectrums, I would say we, we've grown up in a soup that's more towards this side. That we're more influenced by a, a theology that has been developed, which is great. I don't want to bat at that. But what I'm saying is let's let our interpretation just express a patience. Um, by the nature of progressive revelation. Every single sermon needs to unfold out more than probably that one text says. Um, There may be sometimes it won't because of whatever situation you're in, you just need to be in that one text. Um, And I think that needs to be left to each man at each, his situation, his sheep that he's shepherding in a small group or his family, uh, his own heart, um, the church, whatever. Um, but let the text stand. No other text has more to say on its meaning than that current text. And we'll talk more about this. We need to keep moving along so we can get done here. Number eight, um, interpretation versus application. There is a difference between interpretation and application. Interpretation finds the meaning of the original author intended in his historical situation. The application is the various ways that one meaning can be lived out today. For instance, in uh, John 15, 12, Jesus said, love one another. A wife might say, that means, now, now notice this, 
um, underline that word or circle it. That means I need to love my husband better. That is a very sloppy use of the word means. Because that's not actually what is the best thing to say. What would be the better word for her to, to use there? The application of that for me is I need to love my husband better. However, is that really the meaning? Is that what Jesus meant? If it is, her husband is going to have some trouble fulfilling that command because he doesn't have a husband. And, if that is the meaning, that wife might get upset when other women in the church try to love her husband better also. So you can see the point. The meaning of John 15:12 is a command for the disciples to exhibit a self-sacrificial concern for others. You might be able to stretch that to apply, keyword apply, to how a wife is to relate to her husband. However, that application is definitely not the meaning of the passage. Okay, As you're interpreting passages, you need to have two steps kept separate from each other. They need more space between them than less space between them. Constrain yourself. Put a short leash on yourself first to find the meaning. Okay, this is where you're going to be able using your hermeneutics, right? And you're going to apply them and have exegesis on the passage occur, right? Um, Stay there, stay there, stay there, stay there. Ask yourself, what does Paul mean? What does Moses mean? What does Jesus mean? Mean, mean, mean. That's what you're saying. Mean there. And then later, sometime later, you're going to force yourself to think about, okay, what is the application? Or another key word to use with that is implication. What's the impact of that text on me today? What kind of an impact should that have? What kind of an application would that have? But you want to think two very different steps taking place. Do not let these two swirl together. It'll become a soupy mess. And that's what this woman has done with John 15 too. What that means is I must love my husband better. Is that what that text means? No. What is she thinking? Ah, I need to apply that towards my husband. Do you understand? It's the wrong use. It's the, it's the use of the wrong word. So be careful with just even using the right words. Don't just say, oh, what that means is you should blah, 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 blah. No, be very careful. Now, what I mean is, here's a way for you to think about applying it. Okay? Um, interpretation and application must always be kept separate. And here's a way to do that. Let's assume you're studying Romans 12, 1 to 2. Rewrite your own words with these two verses, uh, for those two verses. Start every sentence with the words, Paul said. Make sure you write only what Paul actually said to the Romans. Okay? By the way, did you know that the book of Romans at one level was not written to you? So you have to do this even with your New Testament passages. And yet at another level, the whole Bible was written to you. But the way that you get to how it was written to you was to get how it was written from Paul to the Romans first. And then it's for you. So go back and make sure Paul said to the Romans, do not be conformed to the world. He said that to Romans in his day. Paul said it. Okay? And, and just force yourself to stay in the text. Um, an example here, Romans 12, 2. The first wrong approach is it's an extreme one. Watch again the, the wrong use of the words here. Oh, do not be conformed to this world. Oh, what that means is that we shouldn't watch television. Means. 
You see, it's the wrong use of the word mean. That's not what meaning is. What is she? What is this person uh, getting wrong? What word should they be operating by? Application. Uh, to me, that means we shouldn't watch television. In fact, this verse means all television is evil. If you own a television, you're not a Christian. That's what Paul said to the Romans, you know. Okay, that's extreme, right? But that's just one big, mixed, swirly approach. Meaning and application, you can't discern the two, where one begins and the next one ends, or one run ends and the next one begins. The right approach would be to do interpretation first. Paul said the Roman believers should not follow the same patterns of thinking and living that unbelievers do. Okay, that's what it means. Okay, how does that apply? Oh, something for me that influences me to think like an unbeliever is watching television. Man, I watch television. I find myself starting to think like the world. Um, To keep from being conformed to worldly thinking, I should be more discerning about what I watch on TV or even maybe avoid watching it altogether. So, again, two clear, crisp steps. Meaning, then application. Do you understand that? Try to sort the two out from one another. Um, Interpretation. What Paul said and meant to the Romans is distinct from how you are to act based on what he said. One meaning or one interpretation can lead to many legitimate applications, right? So you're reading, a, you're reading a, um, the, the Bible and you're in this passage and there's only one meaning right there. But from that, you could come up with a variety <laughs> of applications, Right? Does that make sense? But those variety of applications come from how many meanings? One. Okay? Um, Grammar and syntax. Number nine, a verse does not say more or less than what the rules of language make it say. It might be qualified by the context, but the real meaning of that text is found in what the passage says according to the normal use of language. Uh, Let me give you an example. Uh, This has been one that has stood out to me. Go to um, Acts chapter 9, verse 31. We just covered this passage not too long ago. Um, Acts chapter 9, verse 31. Yikes. Here's where grammar and syntax is really important. Um, You might, let's say you're reading Acts 9 and you get to verse 31. And so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, having uh, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord. Wow, the fear of the Lord. And then the comfort of the Holy Spirit it continued to increase. Man, the fear of the Lord. God has just really been impressing that upon me a lot lately and the fear of the Lord. You know what Acts 9.31 is all about? It's all about the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. Man, that is a huge concept in Scripture. I could go back into to Proverbs and I could trace through the fear of the Lord there and and I can go into, man, fear of the Lord. It's a huge concept. Acts 9.31 is about the fear of the Lord. Did you know that? The next thing you know, you're just so overwhelmed by this phrase. And what you've done is you have not looked at how the prepositional phrase there is, um, uh, is even related to other words around it. For instance, that's not the main idea. The main idea of 9.31 is there's two main clauses. Um, the church... was having peace. That's the first main clause. And the next one is, it continually was increasing. That's more literal from the Greek. Okay? 
Now, those are the two main ideas. That's what Luke was trying to get across. He wanted to communicate two things about the church. It was having peace, and it was growing all of the time. Now, he provides one qualifying phrase underneath there. Being built up. That tells us how it was having peace. It's a subordinate thought. It's not the main idea. It's a subordinate thought. And for it continually increasing, it has two phrases. They're actually given in front of it before the main clause comes. Sometimes you do that. Uh, Leaving in a hurry, I went to the store. What's the main idea? I went to the store, but I led you with what? A qualifying phrase about it. Do you understand? The two come before it. The one is the fear of the Lord. Is going on in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And there here's your sermon. And that's what my sermon was. There are two things about the church that were being said. It was having peace. It was a time of peace and increase. So let's clarify what it means for a church to have peace. Well, they were being built up. And what does it mean for a church to increase? What does it increase if you don't fear Jesus and they don't have the comfort of the Holy Spirit? Um, So now you put things in their proper place, and grammar and syntax matters. Now here's the good thing for you guys. If you don't know that, and you capitalize on, if you make something the main thing that isn't the main thing, you're going to be off in degrees, but because you're paying attention to the text, you're not going to say something the text doesn't say. You just might be saying something more than the text is saying. Uh, But you're not going to be necessarily un- uh, off theologically in great degrees, okay? Um, let me do one more, or two more. See if I can get done with two more. Historical appropriateness. One of the great dangers a Bible student faces is reading a, a modern view of a word or concept back into a biblical one. He talks about how modern-day psychologists take the idea of ego, and because, oh, that's a Greek word, uh, ego. It's the first-person singular pronoun in the nominative form for I. It's I. Paul, when Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, he says, ego, I've been crucified. I, I myself have been crucified. So it's ego. Oh yeah, Freud talked about ego, right? And so he takes the whole idea of ego and imports it back into what the Bible says. And that's, that's not being historically appropriate. That word did not have that connotation, didn't have that meaning at that time. You want to be careful to not do that. That's called totality transfer. Let me give you an example from our modern day. When you see the word slave in the New Testament, in a New Testament form of slavery, to import our nation's history of slavery into that meaning in the New Testament would be wrong. There are some things that are similar about the way that the United States did slavery compared to the way first century slavery was in the Roman Empire, and there are many, 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 many different things. So to look at the New Testament and go, well, I just I got problems with the New Testament because it's got slavery in it, and and, and look at look how just what a blight slavery has been on our nation and and blah 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 whatever. Uh, that's totality transfer. You can do that with many words. Um, got to be careful. Number eleven. To understand a passage of scripture, key words within that passage must be defined accurately as illustrated just above. To do this, it is helpful to consider the other uses of that word in scripture. Now, how do you start? Let's say Paul uses the word call, called. Um, If you wanted to see how that word was used in scripture, where would you go first? Bible Gateway. Ah, Bible Gateway. 
uh, yes, and hopefully you would use Bible Gateway to help you stay. Let's say you're in Romans 8. Huh? Oh, he's like, what am I doing with my life? There's no impact yet. <laughs> um, you, you, you would go and you would look at Paul's other uses of that word in Romans. Let's say you're looking at it in Romans 8. You want to see how Paul uses that word himself in Romans and other places. Then, where do you go after that? But not even so far that way. Where, where next in the New Testament? Other uses of that word in other letters of Paul. Why are, you staying, why are we staying so tight on Paul? Because that's the way he uses the word. Wouldn't you want somebody to do that with yours? Yeah, you would. Okay, then where do you go after that? Now you go to the rest of the New Testament. And then where do you go? To the Old Testament as well, right? So you work from concentric circles outside. Called is a great idea. You can go, you can read Romans 8 and talk about the ones who are called there. They're the ones who are predestined, right? And then you can go to Matthew 22, verse 14, and, and Jesus just ruins that, and he says, many are called, but few are chosen. Wait a minute. Paul says it's only the predestined ones that are called. And Jesus just said, many are called, but few are chosen. What does that mean about the word call? The verb to call in the New Testament. What does it mean? It does not have what? One rigid meaning that never changes. What determines its meaning? Depending on which context you're in. Both are legitimate uses of the word, depending on how you're using it. Make sure That's why it is so dangerous if you're going, oh, well, let me tell you what Paul means in Romans 8 by those who are predestined or called. Jesus says many have been called. Oh, my goodness. You're just Mr. Error everywhere, right? When a word does not have any other meaning except for one meaning, that means it's a technical term. And I don't think there's very many of them, actually, in the New Testament. Think about it. Huh? Yeah, that's one. But there's not very many. There's not very many at all. Um, last one, checking principle. We're going to finish this up. That just means go to commentaries, go to Bible dictionaries, go to lexicons. Why is that one last? Why is the checking principle last? Huh? Yeah. You do look. You're going to find. You're going to find yourself like the first thing you're going to do is I got to get my I got to get my MacArthur Bible study or my study Bible out. I got to get I got to get Lenski out. I'm going to get my commentaries out. You lay them all out in front of you. Get them all set to the right passage, and then you go, Oh yeah, I should probably put my Bible that passage too. There it is. Okay, here I go. What's Lenski say? Ah, oh, don't do that, guys. Don't do that. Apply these rules. Stay there yourself. Put the commentaries away. Set them over to the side and linger in your text for a long time. And then when you get all of it and you think you've squeezed every drop out of your head that you could get in that, then pick up a commentary and go look at it. Okay? This is just an introduction to you guys. Um, it's helpful um, to watch um, these kinds of uh, principles being applied by the guys around you. Um, I, I try to model this every Sunday in front of you. Uh, I believe preaching is public hermeneutics. I am showing you publicly what it means to interpret your Bible. Um, and that's what your elders want to do here is help you um, understand this so that you guys can interpret Scripture well for your own soul. Okay? Let's pray. I'll let you guys get out of here.
Father in heaven, thank you for these men, and I pray, Lord, that you would take these principles of interpretation and that you would help them uh, to apply them accurately. Um, Lord, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for the the way that language works. Um, So grateful for you being a God who communicated yourself to us, that you spoke to us in these last days through your son, in your son, the language of your son. Lord, may our study draw us closer to him so that we might worship him and fear him, love him, express our need for him, our enjoyment and delight of him. Father, to that end, we look to you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for coming, guys.